appreciate the presence of everyone. We have visitors with us. We're glad that you're here and hope you can come back and be with us again. I encourage you to get a Bible and turn to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. That's where we'll be spending our time this evening, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 has five sections to it as I outline it. It deals with the spread of the message of Jesus. In the first 12 verses, we're sending out the 70, which has to do with sounding out the message of Jesus. And then in 13 to 16, there are woes that are pronounced for the rejection of that message. So the message needs to be sounded out, but if it's rejected, there are woes. In 17 to 24, there is the joy of the reception of that message, that it ought to be received, and when it is received, there is great joy to be re in receiving the message. But then there's the question of what does this message require of us? And that's the focus of verses 25 to 37 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then there's the choices of Mary and Martha toward the end of the chapter, which focuses on priority. So all of this relates to the spread of the message of Jesus. And I want us to focus on this section of 25 to 37 of what the message of Jesus requires. And that is the focus on the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's look at verses 25 to 37. The Good Samaritan, that's our subject for this evening, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Let's talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's it all about? What's it say? What do we learn? Well, let's start now by beginning at verse 25, and let's read verses 25 to 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and what is your reading of it? And so he answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a, the a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, and pouring on oil and wine, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper, and he said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come, I will repay you. So which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I encourage you to get your Bible open to Luke chapter 10. Though we've read from the screen before us, I want us to be looking back now at the text and reflect back on verses 25 to 37. Let's talk about the story that was just told. Now the parable is couched in that story, but what was the story? Well, there was a lawyer who came to Jesus asking a question, and his question was, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus responded with the, with the answer of saying, what's written in the law? With a question, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? What does the law say? You tell me. You're a lawyer. You tell me what the law says. And the lawyer summarized the law in two points, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And he was right about that, and Jesus said, you have, have it right. So now go do that. You want to know what you need to do? You just told me. You understand. You knew. You knew what the law said. So just go do that, he said. Well, notice at verse 29, the lawyer then asked another question, wanting to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Now, one of the requirements was, love your neighbor as yourself. Just tell me who my neighbor is. And so Jesus then spoke a parable, verses 35, 30 to 35. So let's stop and talk about the parable now for a little bit. And work through the parable just briefly. We're going to come back and list some lessons in a moment. But what was the parable? Well, let's start with the scene. There was a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And beginning at verse 30, the text says, There was a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the thieves. This was a road that was notoriously dangerous. The road dropped some 30,000 feet within a 20-mile distance, which made it a very dangerous road. There were crooks, there were sudden turns, there were caves, there were prime spots for robbers. It was a rocky road. By the 5th century, people were still saying, and Jerome would call it the red or the bloody way because of so many disasters that took place. As late as the 1930s, people were still being warned to get in before dark and not be on the road between Jer Jerusalem and Jericho. Very dangerous road for many, many centuries. The text says, now the man that fell among the thieves, they left him, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And verse 31 now says there was a priest that came by. This priest was a Jew, obviously. He's supposed to be among God's people. This priest comes by, and verse 31 says he came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He missed an opportunity to show love. He was not willing to take a risk in taking care of the man who was wounded. He's not just a man who is in need and, and maybe he's going to be okay, but this is a man who, who needs some help and he's wounded, left half dead, and he passed by on the other side. And the lawyer would certainly fit into that category because the question he raised at verse 29 was, who is my neighbor? I really don't want to fulfill my responsibility toward anyone because I really can't define who neighbor is. He would plug into that category of being like the priest. Well, there's another man that came along, and the text says there was the Levite that came down. Look at verse 32. And likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, he came and looked and passed by on the other side. He too missed an opportunity to serve and to demonstrate and show his love. He was not a risk taker either. He wasn't willing to take the risk of taking care of the man, and perhaps he could become in danger. But he's actually worse than the priest. Because this man, this time, he goes and looks at the misfortunate victim and looks at him and witnesses what's going on. Notice again verse 32. He came to the place and came and looked and passed by on the other side. That is much worse. How would you, if you were the victim, rather have somebody just pass by and they avoid you altogether or someone come and look and see that you're in need and see you're half dead and see you're wounded and then they pass by on the other side. I want to suggest to you that his very conduct was a violation of the law. We're not going to take the time to go back to Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 22, but those were the laws that simply said that if your neighbor, uh, neighbor's ox or donkey or whatever animal was out and you found it, then you were to take care of that and get it back to them. You were to take care of even their animals. And if even one who was your enemy had his animal to get at, you were to take care of that and get it back to them. 
Then there's a third character that's mentioned here. There's the priest, there's the Levite, and now there's the Samaritan. And the text says at verse 33, a certain Samaritan came as he journeyed, and he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Now, who were the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans were a mixed race. You see, in the northern kingdom, when Assyria took them into captivity, they took many of the Jews away, and they brought many Gentiles in. They brought Assyrians in. And those Assyrians that came in with the Jews that were left, they mixed together and they developed a mixed race, which were the Samaritans. That's why the Jews had nothing much to do with them. In fact, John chapter 4, the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings one with the other. There was that division between their races. Didn't have much use for one another. And he this time comes to a Jew. This is a Samaritan who normally wouldn't have anything to do with a Jew. Who because of that difference they wouldn't have, uh, have any compassion one for the other. But this Samaritan comes along and he sees this man who is wounded, a Jew. And he has compassion on him. Now notice at verse 33. Uh, verse 34 rather. That he went and bandaged his wounds pouring in oil and wine. Perhaps using the wine to cleanse the wound and the oil to heal and relieve the pain. Now he exposed himself to the same risk that the, rob uh, that the uh, victim had faced and others that would face along the same way. By taking the time to stop and deal with this, he's exposing himself to a risk that the others were not willing to expose themselves to. I want to suggest to you this cost him something. It cost him some time. It cost him some money. And it was very inconvenient for him. Because I'll notice the wording of verse 33, that as he journeyed, he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, or perhaps Jericho to Jerusalem. He's making a journey. This is not what he's in. He's not looking for people that he might help. But he happens to see someone who is in need, and he takes care of them. So it was an inconvenience for him. Now, that was the parable that Jesus just told. Let's go back now to the story. So Jesus said, which of these then is neighbored him? Look at verse 36. This is a powerful question. Jesus said, which of these three do you think was neighbor to he that fell among the thieves? What a powerful probing question. Jesus has just shifted attention from the object of love to the one who shows and displays love. Because the man had said, you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says. I understand that the, the lawyer said. And Jesus said, well, you said, right, so the, go do that. Go love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? The object of my love, I, I have a hard time defining. So Jesus goes away from the question of the object of love to the one who is displaying and showing the love. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him? So he's asking the, law, the lawyer the same question he's just been asked. Who is neighbor? You tell me, Lord, who is the neighbor? And then when I find, figure out who the neighbor is, then I'll love him. So Jesus said, you tell me then. Which of these three that I just described you, was it the priest, was it the Levite, or was it the good Samaritan? And his answer was, notice verse 37, the one that showed mercy on him. William Taylor said this, he said this first, that the parable is not so much an answer to the question formally put by the lawyer as an exposure of the state of heart which the putting of that question revealed. The inquirer wanted a definition of the word neighbor, and Jesus answers by showing him true neighborliness in contrast to selfish indifference. I say amen. So the answer this lawyer gave was, the one that showed him mercy is the one that was his neighbor. That's the one who was really a neighbor. And Jesus' response to that was, you go and you do that likewise. Now that's the story that was told, and encouched in the middle of that is this parable. Let's talk about some lessons that we learned from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's the first. 
One of the first things I learned is that men's motives are not always pure. Men's motives are not always pure. The lawyer's questions were good questions. He had two, in fact. The first question he asked was at verse 25. He asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question, isn't it? And the second question was, who is my neighbor, he said. But what I want to suggest to you is the first was an attempt to tempt Jesus or put him to the test. He wasn't asking and inquiring. I really want to know. I want you to tell me because I want to have eternal life. Notice the wording of verse 25. He stood up and tested him saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? His motive was all wrong. Look at verse 29. The second question was, who is my neighbor? But the text says, willing to justify himself. We'll say more about that in a moment. His questions were good, but his motive was wrong. As we mentioned with reference to prayer, it's possible to do right things, but the motive all be wrong. Let's take this case of helping those who are in need, which is mentioned here in the context. I might be willing to help the needy, but I do it for notoriety. In other words, I want people to see that I'm helping those who are in need. So I'm doing the right thing, like asking the right question, but the motive is all wrong. Or it might be attending worship, but I'm doing that so I can be seen. Or maybe it's because I want to develop some contacts for my sales and things that I need to distribute. There have been people who've been in business choose a large church because that's a church that has many contacts for them. Attending worship is for the wrong motive. Or it might be that I want to preach the gospel, but I do that so I can be praised for my knowledge of the word. Or maybe I'm doing that simply so I can get paid and not because I'm trying to spread the gospel. Or it might be someone obeys the gospel only to please their parents or to please or hush their mate that's nagging on them for their obedience to the gospel. They're doing good things, but for the wrong motive. Or it may be someone confesses that they did wrong or they were in the wrong only to make their critics happy, not because they really thought they were wrong and trying to correct their lives. Or maybe I convert my neighbor because he has money and that will help us financially. That's the real motive. Or maybe I condemn someone, not because I'm trying to correct them, because I'm trying to get even with them. You see, it's possible to have the wrong motive. So one of the things I learned from that is his motives are not always pure. It wasn't in the case of the lawyer. Here's the second thing that I'm learning from this parable. The law, the word of God, is the standard. Let's go to verse 26. When the, when the lawyer asked the question, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Though his motive may not have been pure, Jesus responded by appealing to the law. Notice what he said. What is written in the law and what is your reading of it? Tell me what the law says. Tell me what the book says. Tell me what the revelation says. Tell me what the word of God is. His question was not, tell me what the rabbis think. Could you tell me what the, the camp that you've been assembling and those that you've been rallying around, what are they saying about this question? Or what is this other group saying over here? What is that group of rabbis? He didn't ask what was the tradition of the Pharisees. What is the tradition among the Jews? What's, what's kind of been handed down? And what's been kind of the thinking commonly among the Jews? That wasn't his question. He said, what's written in the law and what, do, what does it say? So here's what I'm learning from that. That our questions must always be, what does the law say? It matters little what the world thinks. We don't stick our finger to the wind and find out what direction the world is going. It doesn't matter a whole lot what brethren think about the issue. It doesn't really matter about tradition and what it says or what we may like or what we may want. 
Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4.13. The standard must always be the revelation of God. Paul said, according as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken, we also believe and therefore speak. If you're so disposed to underline things in your Bible, you may take that phrase, according as it is written. Paul said, according as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. What do you believe, Paul? I believe what's written of God. What do you speak, Paul? What is written of God? According as it is written. What is written in the law and what is your reading of it? In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles, the sayings, the revelation of God. And so what I'm learning from this is the law, the word, is the standard. When a question is asked, how insincere it may be, the answer and the direction should always be pointed to the word of God as being the standard. Here's a third thing I learned from this parable in Luke chapter 10. I learned something about the efforts of men to justify themselves. I learned something about men wanting to justify themselves. What I want to suggest to you is the lawyer tried to justify himself. Let's go to verse 29. In fact, both questions do this. But particularly verse 29, his question was designed to skirt the law. Because he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you tell me what the law says. Well, the law says love your neighbor as yourself. That's one of them. Love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. I know what the law says. I know what, I, I'm not arguing about what the law says. The law says love your neighbor. But tell me, Lord, who is my neighbor? It's that question. Notice it, verse 29. He willing to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Implied in the question is, the word neighbor is so vague I can't understand that. You're going to have a hard time, Jesus, defining neighbor. Is this one my neighbor? Well, since you can't really point that for sure, and you can't tell me for sure this one is my neighbor, then I don't need to love him. I don't need to love certain people because they're, I don't know how to define them as my neighbor. See, it's vague. Kind of hard to understand. What I want to suggest to you is the real problem is not that we cannot know what is required, but putting that uh, into our lives into harmony with what the Word of God has to say. And that was the case with this lawyer. Things are no different in our own day. Men today do the very same thing. They raise questions about the law as if the law is vague. How, how, how can we determine? How can we figure that out? How do I know how to make application of that? Since I can't know, then we don't make application of that. Like what? Well, you see, if baptism is essential, if, if, and I know what the law is, I know what, I've read Mark 16, I know what it says, but if it really means that, then what, what, what about my mother who wasn't baptized, someone says? I, I just can't fathom, I can't, I can't grasp that. Are you telling me that the person who didn't know and wasn't taught, they're going to be lost? You see, that's kind of hard to understand. Or maybe this is a little closer to the point. In the divorce and remarriage question, if divorce and remarriage is wrong, then, then you're saying my daughter is in adultery? You're saying my son is living in adultery? You're saying my parents are living in adultery? I can't fathom that. You see, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to nail down exactly what the law of God has to say. The revelation is not clear, we're told. Or someone says that doesn't seem fair to me particularly on divorce and remarriage, or any other requirement for that matter. That doesn't seem fair to me that God would give that requirement. In 1 Corinthians 11, we talk about the man's hair being long and the prohibition of the man's hair being long. The question has been raised through the years, how long is long and how short is short? The context, of course, will tell us, but, but the argument is, who, who is determined what's long and short? In other words, we can't figure that out. We don't know what's long, and we don't know what's short. And so there's no way to determine that the woman's hair is too short or the man's hair is too long. We have no way to determine that. So that passage is just out. 
We make no application of that. When it comes to modesty, how, how do you determine what's long? How do you determine what's immodest? How do you determine when it's too short? The point is it's too vague. We can't understand it. That's what the lawyer was doing. There's no way to make application of that, we're told. Again, with divorce and remarriage, it's not easy to understand, we're told. One notable brother said a few years ago, the revelation of God on divorce and remarriage lacks clarity. So it's, since it's so unclear, it's hard for us to make application. We can't tell this person they're living in adultery because the revelation of God lacks clarity, you see. That's what this lawyer is saying. This neighbor concept it lacks clarity. Nobody really knows what that's all about. We can't make application of that. When we come to Romans chapter 14, we're raising the question, or people are raising the question constantly, how do you determine what goes in Romans 14? What is Romans 14 about? It's a passage that says we can agree to disagree, but what kind of issues go there? Well, it's matters of indifference, matters that God doesn't care one way or the other, the context shows, like eating of meats. God doesn't care whether you do that or not. But the question is, we can't, we can't understand Romans 14, because who, who determines what goes in that? You see, that's vague, you see. And that's exactly what this man was doing. He's saying the revelation of God is vague. I can't figure out what neighbor means, and so that doesn't apply to me. I don't have to follow that law. Here's another thing I learned from this story. There are times when the world does much better than God's people. That's one of the more potent and powerful lessons to learn from the parable of the Good Samaritan. There are times when the world does better than God's people. Well, let's go back to Luke chapter 10. If you've left that, let's go back to verse 31, 32, and 33. There are three characters that are mentioned there. There was a priest who was a Jew. There was a Levite who was a Jew. And there was a Samaritan who was not a Jew. The priest was supposed to be among God's people. The Levite's supposed to be among God's people. The Samaritan didn't claim to be among God's people. Now, which of those three fit the category? What I want to suggest to you is the Samaritan did better than the priest and the Levite and even the lawyer in the context. Because the lawyer is saying, I can't figure out who neighbor is, so I'm not going to show love toward certain people because I can't figure out if they're my neighbor or not. So in this case, we have a story of one who is not among God's people, one who is a Samaritan. He's not a priest, he's not a Levite, he's not even a Jew. He's not even like them at all. But he's doing much better and showing love than they are. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's another case. There were times when the heathens would do better than the Corinthian church. Here were those who had come out of heathenism. They came out of all kinds of corruption, and yet they reach the point they're tolerating not only sin in their midst, they're tolerating fornication in their midst, but it's a special kind of fornication where a man has his father's wife. He said it is reported, beginning at verse 1, that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles that the, a man should have his father's wife. He said even the Gentiles wouldn't tolerate that. You see, the Gentile world, the pagan world, wouldn't tolerate that kind of immorality. They may tolerate immorality and it's rampant, but not that kind of immorality. They wouldn't. And so I'm learning from that there are times when the world does better. Today the world can do better in a number of things, perhaps, than God's people. Maybe like in zeal. In Romans chapter 10, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. It didn't mean they were right, it just means they had a zeal. They were commended for their zeal. They were on fire for doing what they thought to be right, but it was in the wrong direction. 
Sometimes there are religious groups that have far greater zeal than we have. They're more excited about serving God. They're more excited about worshiping God. They're excited about teaching their neighbors and proselyting or witnessing, as they may call it, than we are. And so we're supposed to be God's people, and yet here is somebody that is a Samaritan that's doing better than we are. Or maybe it's using opportunities to teach and to help. Maybe when an opportunity presents itself where I could teach and influence, the world may be capturing that opportunity and teaching them error and doing a better job at teaching than we are, using tools that we don't want to use. Maybe to help someone who is in need, that they seize the opportunity to help them where we could have done that very thing, but we are supposed to be God's people, but the Samaritan did better than we are. Maybe it's helping those who are in need. It might be being strict with our children. Sometimes people of the world have stronger discipline measures and raising their children and molding and shaping them into the direction where they think they ought to be going. I'm not saying they taught them the truth of God, but they may be molding and shaping them in the right direction according to their ideas than we are in shaping and molding our children. They may be firmer in their discipline than we are in the discipline of our children. And the Samaritans may be doing a better job at times. Maybe they're sometimes strict in morals and standards and watching for dangers more than we are. I can cite a number of cases where people of the world saw dangers of dancing and may still see dangers in dancing that my own brethren don't see. It may be that they're praying fervently while God's maybe not listening to their prayer if they're not living in harmony as we talked about this morning, but they're praying fervently when maybe we're not praying as fervently. The Samaritans may be praying more than we are. It may be the home life and the marriage relationships that they're doing better in keeping their marriage together than God's people. The Samaritan may have a better marriage than you have. And yet you're supposed to be among God's people. Here's something else I'm learning. I'm learning a lesson about what love means. This is what the question was about. Remember what the answer to the question was? Love your neighbor as yourself is what you're asking about Jesus. You're asking, what should I do? I ask you what to do. And you said, what's in the law? Love your neighbor as yourself is one of the things. Well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells a story. Well, what does loving your neighbor mean? What does it mean? Well, let's go back to our text first, and then we'll come to Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 33 of our text in Luke chapter 10. The, good, the certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. That means he felt with him. He put himself in his place. What would it be like to be in his shoes and to be suffering and to be, be wounded and left half dead and stripped of your clothing and robbed? And what if I were laying there and he had compassion, he would want this Jew to take care of a Samaritan. You know what that tells me is that when the priest came and he looked at him or he went on the other side, he had no compassion. He didn't feel with him, didn't feel for him. Same thing with the Levite. He went and looked and he saw he had even less compassion than the priest. And apparently the lawyer didn't have any either. But let's go to Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. It means we show compassion. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you show compassion. Romans 12 verse 15. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those who weep. So when those are rejoicing, compassion means I feel with them, I rejoice with them. And when they're weeping, I weep with them. When they're wounded, I put myself in their place, is the idea. Love involves more than a feeling. 
And more than sympathy, it involves action. The priest comes by on the one side, and he may have had some feelings. I don't know what he had. But at least the Levite had enough feeling to go and investigate and look and see the need. And then he may have felt for him. But not much compassion, did he? But it was the Samaritan that acted and followed through. And Jesus said, which one of these three loved, uh, showed, showed love? Which one of the three? Which one of the three? Look at verse 36. Luke chapter 10 again. Look at verse 36. Which one of these do you think was neighbor among him that fell among the thieves? Which one was being a neighbor and showing love? Which one? Was one who had mercy on him, had compassion on him. Love means you help even those that bring trouble on themselves. What happened to this man as he's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho? Well, it was a dangerous road. Anyone who traveled had to know it was a dangerous road. And in some sense, he brought that on himself. But love means you help those who even bring problems on themselves. The question is not so much who is my neighbor. But the question is about being one, and that's what Jesus is doing in the parable. William Taylor said this, he said, Thus the parable does not tell us in form who our neighbor is. That was the question, verse 29. But it shows how true love works. Jesus was not going to bite and say, I'll define neighbor for you. What he said was, here's what love does. Let me give you a story that tells that very thing. You see, here's the quality of the love that the Samaritan demonstrated. He demonstrated kindness of spirit and not just of letter. I'm sure the priest and the Levite and the lawyer knew the letter of the law. In fact, the lawyer knew that. He could cite the law and say, we love your neighbor as yourself. I know exactly what that says. I'm a lawyer. I study and I know the law. But the Samaritan had the kindness of the spirit, not just of the letter. He showed benevolence that was not hindered by the prejudice of nationality or race. He didn't come and look and say, oh, he's a Samaritan. I'm going to back off. I don't know. No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have nothing to do with him if he's a Samaritan. If it had been a Jew, I would have helped him, but not a Samaritan. Here was a benevolence that was not hindered at all by the prejudice of nationality or race. And his care was not delayed by personal convenience. I don't know about the priest. It may not have been too convenient for him to stop and take care of him. And it may not have been convenient for the Levite. And it must not have been convenient for this Samaritan either. And it was not delayed by that at all. Listen to Trench. Trench said, the Lord's lesson was this. It's not the object which is to determine the love, but that love has its own measure in itself. It's like the sun, which does not ask where it, what it shall, on what it shall shine or what it shall warm, but shines and warms by the very law of its own being. So that there is nothing hidden from its light or its heat. You see, the sun doesn't ask, where, where do I shine my light? It just shines its light. And that's what love does, he says. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Here's another lesson that we learn from the Good Samaritan. That is, the problem is not in knowing but the problem is in doing. Let's go back to verse 26, verse 25, 26, and 27. The lawyer knew what the law said. He's just not doing it. Because he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? What you're reading of? You tell me what the law says. You're a lawyer, you tell me what the law says. He said, okay, I'll tell you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the law says. 
but he just wasn't doing it. Evidence of that's found in verse 29. So knowing is easier than doing is what I'm learning from that. Knowing what God wants me to do, knowing what God would have me to uh, perform is far easier than performing it or doing it. In fact, the Pharisees say and they don't do. The Pharisees were quite good at teaching and saying, here's what the law tells you to do, but they were not very good at fulfilling and doing the very thing. We have the same problem today. How so? Well, too often the emphasis is on the truth being taught rather than the practice of that. I want to be in a church where the truth is taught. I want to make sure our preacher preaches the truth. I want to make sure that truth is, is always stood for in this pulpit and by this church, etc., etc., where emphasis not only needs to be on the truth being taught, it needs to be practiced. We're not going to be judged merely on what we were taught or what we believed, but what we did. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 10. Here is one of those judgment scene passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 10. Also, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive the things done in the body, not just what we believe. What were you taught? How were you instructed? But what was done in the body according to what he has done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. We must be doers of the law and not hearers only. William Barclay said this, in the end we'll be judged not by the creed which we hold, but the life which we live. Again, I quote from Trench. Go, the Lord says, and do thou likewise. He would make the lawyer aware of the great guff between his knowing and his doing. How little his actual exercise of love kept pace with his knowledge. Did you catch the point? What the Lord is trying to say in the parable is, you have knowledge, but your practice isn't keeping up with your knowledge. Knowing isn't your problem. Doing is your problem. I like what one writer said in the adult Bible quarterly. He said, finally, there comes a time when you stop debating and act as Marcus Aurelius once wrote. Let's put an end once and for all to the discussion of what a good man should be and be one. That's what Jesus is saying in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, what have we seen in our study this evening? Here was a story where a lawyer came to Jesus and said, what, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, he said, you tell me. You know the law, you tell me. What does the law say? What's written in the law? And he rightly answered and told Jesus. And then he responded by saying, well, just tell me who my neighbor is. I, I am a, I'm having a hard time figuring that out. So Jesus spoke a parable. Here's what I learned from all of that. That man's motives are not always pure. And the law and the word is the standard because Jesus said, what's written in the law, he said. I see an effort of men to justify themselves. There's time the world does better than we do. Understand something about what love means, and the problem is not in knowing, but the problem is in doing what the Lord would have us to do. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?